we're so pleased to have Aura Kanihian on the Globe Screen podcast. Welcome, Aura. Thanks for having me, Ziff. And so I guess, please just give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself and what you do at Rodeo FX. At Rodeo FX, I've been with this company for, with Rodeo FX for a little over 14 years now. I've been working in the visual effects industry for about 22 years now. I started around, it was around year 2000, I think. I, I started off as a digital compositor. And what does that entail exactly for people that don't really know? Composite, digital compositing for people who don't know, this is, it's a department in visual effects where you're in charge of taking all the footage that's been filmed on set you're going to take the CG rendered elements. You're going to take the beautiful matte painting that's been painted. You're going to take some elements that you shot and you're going to put them all together in, 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 on the background plate or on the shot elements. And you're going to integrate them and make them look like they've been filmed with the same camera on set. So basically your job is integrating all of those different elements from all the departments and putting them together and making it look photoreal as much as possible. Is that process any different today than it was when you first started in the field? The main principle is still the same. Obviously, now we have more tools. We have a little bit more tech. We have a little bit more sophisticated softwares and plugins and this and that. But the general idea and the philosophy behind it and even the math behind how it happens is the same. That hasn't changed. So it's still how you layer the elements together, how you're going to go in and do some rotoscoping and isolating elements frame by frame and putting them together, tastefully adding a lens flare, let's say, or enhancing the color correction or blurring or defocusing. So it's all principles that haven't really changed in all these years, but the technology behind it has been greatly accelerated. And pr prior to joining at Rodeo Effects, you've worked on so many films and you spent several years at buzz image group on films like the aviator 300 and the fountain correct was there any memorable technical challenges from the movies that you worked on there i would say back in those days every single movie had its own set of technical challenges you had to work with which was really fascinating back in those days i used to be it was a it was a branch of compositing called you were an inferno artist or a flame artist. So th those were basically back in the days, they weren't softwares, right? They were called systems. So it was discrete logic before they got bought by Autodesk. They would sell an inferno, which is a software that's bundled with the specific hardware that goes with it. So you're buying basically, it's a huge server that you're buying with the software that's connected to the hardware itself. So that was before we had Nuke. Shake was there back then, back when, but Nuke didn't even exist, some of those softwares. So we were compositing with those platforms. And I remember when I was at Buzz, I worked there for about five years. And some of the most memorable films, like you mentioned, you know, there was uh, Aviator. We had a couple of cool shots to do there. The Fountain, we had some nice, big, nice challenges. We worked and as that well. Was a, that was a beautiful... Friend film by the way the fountain i just remember because i was i've always been a fan of darren aronofsky's work but i just remember when that film came out that was like really visually stunning i completely agree i remember some of the sequences we had worked on where they were stunning the, the, the sequences where he's basically in that that floating bowl of a spaceship with the tree on it and the sap is coming out of it and then he ends up being part of the ground and plants grow through him. We had a lot of different sequences of scenes like that to do. They were such visual. It was very particular. Visually, it was mind-blowing, I thought. That film, every single frame could be a poster. It's something well said. 
Yeah, thank you. And working on it was a huge honor as well. It had a lot of crazy challenges, technically speaking, artistically speaking. But in the end, you look at it and you're extremely proud of the work. Same deal when we, back at Buzz, we used to work on, we, we had worked on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. From I love that movie. It's so good. That one as well, it had so many cool challenges and the different styles of the directors and the supervisors when they design movies like this, you get, you get into these universes where you have to think the way that they think a little bit when you're working on these shots because Michel Gondry has a very playful way of creating movies. He's going he's gonna to create scenes that it doesn't need to be very technically, the prowess behind it doesn't need to be overly complicated. He's going to look at it going, he's going to take a piece of paper, say if your path is going from A to B, then you can just fold it and do this instead and go through another pathway to go to where you need to go and let's shoot a little miniature here and then reverse that footage there and do this and loop that and it's all it's a way of doing films that are very it's a little bit like when you're experimenting at home and you're doing stop motion and you're doing little side projects almost but he does his own movies like that in a very artfully and he's truly a creative film director he is yeah even just be kind rewind that was like a smaller movie that he did I love that one too. I love that one too. But yeah, I loved Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. And it's one that really lasts the test of time. Because when I first saw it, I really liked it. And then I remember seeing it many years later, they did like a special screening of it at a movie theater in Manhattan. And I'm just like, wow, this film is just incredible. Visually, it was stunning. Yeah, my, my colleague, he was working and I helped him out doing that shot. Rest in peace. He passed away a couple of years ago, but sorry to hear. He was working on that sequence where Jim Carrey's character, he's basically running from one corner of a street to another one but every time he gets to that corner it's the same corner that he started in but it was reversed and flopped and then he would go back and and just jump back from side to street to the other side and it was just this kind of weird mirrored set It, it was fantastic the way that it was designed and the way that it came out it was fun yeah and then I worked on some of these films and 300 was one of them as well 300 was a big kind of visual effects milestone back in the days yeah, that was a game-changing film visually when it came out. I remember seeing that in the IMAX, and it just blew me away. And everybody that was with me that saw it just blew us away. Exactly. That was one of the first movies where, you know, they, they did it in a way where they built very miniature and very small sets with green screens everywhere. And basically, everything you're seeing is visual effects, or most of it. That was one of the first ones that had done it that way, of not going through the shooting on location and shooting big set pieces. It was really just small sets, green screen, and then artfully directed CG backgrounds everywhere. So that was a fantastic experience. And when I left Buzz Image Group, I went to work at Hybrid for a couple of years. It's a little bit further away in Montreal here. And I remember I worked on 300 there as well. Finished at Buzz, went there, and we were still working on that movie, but I worked on it on other scenes in another company, which was a fun experience. Did you, that is pretty cool. Did you have any idea how big of a movie that was going to turn out to be when you were working on it? Not really. When you're working on these films, you have, sometimes you get that instinct of, oh, this one's going to be a big one. Sometimes you're completely wrong and you think something's going to be big and it ends up being something that people forget. Sometimes you also... yeah, you also, and not to cut you off, but you also worked on Mr. Nobody, which I loved that film, actually. Yeah. It was really good. And I, I'm not sure if it did better internationally, but I'm surprised that it wasn't like a bigger film here in the US. Because when I first discovered it, I was like, wow, this is an amazing film, but it's like hardly anybody was talking about it. 
I agree. That's one of the films where not a lot of people talk about it. But I remember we had so much fun working on that movie. Visually, it's really, it's breathtaking. And the people involved in that film, I remember they were from European kind of comic books and animated graphic novels. And so there was a huge interest and passion about just the visual of how it looks, how it looks when he's inside his mind and when he's with the psychologist, with this futuristic city around them. And there were so many fun and cool scenes to work on on that film. That was a nice one. Just to backtrack for a moment, how is the role of an Inferno artist? How is that different from a compositor? I guess, what is an Inferno artist really? It's really the same thing. It's not a huge difference. The Inferno artist is that you're working on an Inferno system, which it doesn't exist anymore. It goes to tell you that it doesn't. <laughs> It doesn't mean much uh, after a couple of years, but it's this platform on which you're working. It's the software and hardware system that you're compositing on. So an Inferno artist is in, in essence, a digital compositor, basically. Okay, that makes sense. And you're also in a field where it's so, compared to other departments in the world of filmmaking and production, it's the most cutting edge. It's the one where it's evolving the fastest. Right? It is. Uh, but I would say, yeah, the whole visual effects industry, the post-production visual That's, effects is evolving yeah. so much and so quickly. And it's, it's very interesting to see where it's heading as well, because before visual effects was exclusively a post-production process, people would do pre-production, they would shoot the film, they would do edit, and then they would lock the edit, and then they would send you footage, and then you would work on it, and then it would be done. And you look at it now, and an edit gets locked after you finish visual effects, sometimes they can still tweak the edit until the last minute that they can. So it's, and visual effect, instead of being a post-production process now, it's starting in pre-production. And you can start seeing with the LED volumes and uh, all those virtual production that's coming out like on series like Mandalorian or other big tentpoles like that, where basically your the visual effects is part of the pre-production and part of production. So it's not even a matter of just doing it at the end. You're part of the creative process of the whole film or series, which is fantastic to, to, to be able to witness that. Yeah, I can imagine that only makes sense and uh, would yield for a better result. So you had also worked on The Aviator, which that's another film that I loved, actually. Did you work on... Yeah, Aviator, we worked, we just had a handful of shots. We worked on some sequences where we were putting Leonardo DiCaprio's face on some archival footage of the oh, character. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. That, so that was cool. It was a little, it, it was fun for us looking back at it going, oh, cool. We're doing a little bit like what they had done in Forrest Gump years back. So that's always, it's a fun... They were fun shots. They weren't very difficult or challenging shots. They were very 2D intensive, but very compositing savvy shots. So we would, we had footage of Leonardo DiCaprio on green screen or blue screen and isolating his face or certain body parts and using archival footage and putting him in. So that was fun to be part of that. So how did you first get into this field? Did you always know that this is something that you wanted to do? <laughs> the way I got into this field is a really funny one because I didn't know I wanted to do this one. I was actually, I had started university in biochemistry, if you can believe that or not. I it's believe it. I've always been a huge fan of science and I started doing that. And then once I got into university and doing biochemistry, I went, I do love science and I do love all of this, but this is a little bit too much. It's, this is where curiosity and passion don't align as much. Curious in, in you wants to know how, we, how everything works around you, but you're missing that passion to make it something on a daily basis or fun. 
And that's when I was thinking back to what I wanted to do. And I've always loved drawing. I've always loved doing sculpting, doing some stop motion stuff at home. So I was always very involved creatively in creating and just having fun with colors and composition, photography as well. And then I started looking into how that could be done with films. And there were, a, there were two schools back then that offered any type of education if you wanted to, if you were curious a little bit, because that was around 1998, 99, 99, I think it was. So even having softwares and, and trying some at home was difficult. So I remember I used to have pirated versions of, I think it was 3D Studio, I think. It wasn't even 3D Max or whatever. It was 3D Studio, I think, on, on DOS. So it was like, you would try and find ways to be able to just practice or try to see how you can create things in 3D and model them. And oh, it was radically different. I could tell you just from being an editor and at that time in the late nineties, I was in high school and I worked as a part-time video editor and even just the world of just doing that was complete, just regular video editing was radically different than it is oh, yeah. now. I was editing on linear decks at that time. And I had a boss who in the other room, he was practicing on just doing some sort of special effects as like a hobby. And it would take him like a week just to render like the smallest sort of thing sometimes. Oh, I remember I modeled a version of Homer Simpson that take days to render just to have something that looked decent. It was, it's fun. It's fun when you think about it. So anyways, yeah. So I went from some, maybe I'm going to be a biochemist to being a visual effects artist. And I got into it, not even knowing if there's any, if any, if there's any hope of getting a good job or getting something that's decent or what salaries are, what types of position you can get. I had no idea. I just knew that, you know, it's something that I was curious about. It's something that I was passionate about. And it's two things that I love putting together. Curiosity and passion kind of need to go hand in hand, I think, in anything we do. You need that passion to drive you and that curiosity to always propel you to something new or see where you're heading or what's going on or what's happening. So that was something that I've always enjoyed. And yeah, no regrets. Yeah. I mean, your IMDb resume shows that you shouldn't have <laughs> any regrets. You've worked on some really impressive films between big films like Terminator Salvation and Source Code and The Final Destination. I think you've, like I said, you've also worked on some films that I think are fantastic, maybe not as well known, like we said, Mr. Nobody, and also a film that I really love called Stay with Ryan Gosling. Yeah. I love that film. We watched and Ryan Gosling, yeah. Yeah. I thought, and I remember it had, it was released and there was advertisements for it, but it wasn't, it, I think in terms of like box office, it didn't set the world on fire or anything, but no, I, thought it, was, it I thought it was a really cool film. And then, yeah, when I joined Rodeo right after that, so I did the stinted buzz and then hybrid and then came to Rodeo. When I started with Rodeo, we were about 10 employees and I was a, I was a senior lead compositor. I forgot when I started there what role I was doing exactly, but we started off as a very kind of small boutique a visual effects house doing matte paintings and compositing work. And then, you know, as projects, you deliver a show and then, you know, what you did looks good and everybody likes it. And then you do another one right after where it's a little bit more challenging. And then, okay, we'll have to create some little CG elements here and there. And then you hire someone that can do a little bit of CG. And then you create a small CG department and then you grow your compositing department. So the company just grew that way, just from show to show, year to year, to we're close to 900 now, I think, working on some of these massive films. 
So it's really fun to see that that progression from where we were to where we're now. Yeah, that's really cool. One thing I'm curious about, and especially with dealing with that sort of large volume of people and more so is I see a lot of films that they might have numerous vendors to handle the VFX in one particular Correct. project. Is that ever challenging, matching the visual, visual style with each other? Is that like ever a thing or is it challenging? It comes with certain challenges. Usually what it, what, the way it happens when there's multiple vendors or companies working on some of these films, it's rare that people, different companies will work on the same scene together. It will happen sometimes when you have massive shared assets and big scenes. That will happen. But most of the time, what's going to happen is you know, production will decide to say, okay, this scene here, we'll give it to Rodeo. This other scene, we'll give it to another vendor. That other scene, we'll give it to someone else. So they're going to split up the movie in, in, in scenes and assets and distribute the work that way. So the good thing about it is that when you're in charge of a whole scene, while well, you're in charge of it, you know, you're not, your shots aren't cutting with some other vendor. So you know that qualities, you have control over the quality in terms of continuity. Where it might start jumping back and forth again is when you're cutting from scene to scene, if the work is different. But honestly, in like, Lately in these days, there's so much good talent working everywhere that it's rare to start. Maybe 10, 15 years ago, you would see some quality differences from scene to scene. Sometimes you go, oh, that wasn't that great. But then that other scene was fantastic, but that scene didn't look good. You don't see that as much now. There's the level of quality has been very high for years now. So that's a good thing. That, that makes sense. Yeah. And I appreciate you shedding some light on that. Like, for example, when we were working, I think it was last year or two years ago, we were working on Marvel's Sheen and the Legend of the Ten Rings. So for that film, let's say we were working on one scene where they're fighting on the side of a CG building in CG Macau. So it was a completely CG created environment, but we were handling the scene from the first shot to the last shot. So you, you basically own that sequence. So continuity and the level of quality while you're in control of it. You're not, it's not one shot done by one company and the other shot by someone else. So that's good. Yeah. So in your earlier years at Rodeo, one of the first projects to transition from compositor to compositing supervisor was Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol and Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Could you describe for the listeners which sequences you completed compositing work for? Those were a little bit smaller projects. Back in those days, yeah, I was switching my hat from senior compositor to lead compositor to compositing supervisor. I was the head of the compositing department as well for a fair amount of years back then. For some of these films we were working on, on Mission Impossible, I remember we were working on, it was a shot where Ethan Hunt is escaping a hospital somewhere in Europe, I forgot. So yeah, he was doing an escape from a hospital. So it was a lot of, a lot of compositing work of just some matte painting work, some rig removals and wire, wire removals and some safety nets and this and that. So we had a lot of stuff like that to be done. We had some user graphical interface elements to be added here and there in some shots. Those were the type of shots we were doing on Mission Impossible. Some of the, some of the bigger films that came afterwards, like Now You See Me, Jack the Giant Slayer. There were a couple of bigger ones that came in later that had a much more varied and bigger scope of work. But then, yeah, you do your work as compositor or lead compositor, and then you jump to compositing supervisor. So when you're supervising compositing that way, you're it's not just the you start putting a supervisory hat as well as an artist hat. So you're in charge of 
you're basically in charge of compositing of, of the shots at the company where you're at. So you're going to, you're going to have a say in, and participate in those and crewing and casting for the shots and methodologies and you sit down with the visual effects supervisor and you go, okay, we have to do this effect now in comp. Should we shoot an element? Should we do one in CG? You start brainstorming and participating in the creative, technical, and production side of compositing, which is always a nice challenge. Yeah, I could imagine that just there's, with filmmaking in general, there's constant technical challenges. And then you're in the most technical aspect of exactly. it. So do you have a generalized approach to problem solving? And then... How do you, over, how do you overcome these problems? problems? Yeah, exactly. Those problems, it's always that cliche classic saying of you never have one giant problem, right? You have, you start off with a big problem and then you can see how you can split it up in multiple little problems that can easily be solved with the end game being solving the main issue. So the main issue is always about the storytelling. It's always about visually what we're doing. Is it serving the shot? Is it serving the story? Is it working the way that it's intended to work? So this is where you get into it, where you have to, you can't create a shot just to have it look cool. It needs to serve its purpose, which is telling a story in that shot or in that scene of what needs to happen that couldn't be shot with a camera. So I'm so happy you say that actually, because I was just having this discussion with somebody, a younger filmmaker, and I was giving them some advice and helping them choose a cinematographer. And I was saying literally the same thing. I was like, a really good cinematographer could make pretty images. But it's not just about making beautiful images. It's about how do each of these images serve the story? Sure. Because I'll be honest, fantastic looking visual effects in a bad film. It's absolutely it's, it's cool visual effects. But but if the audience doesn't engage and doesn't get into the story or the characters or what's happening on screen, it defeats the purpose a little bit. But mediocre visual effects, which we hope that doesn't happen that often in a fantastic film, will get will not get noticed because you're so involved in the film, the story and what's happening that it, it goes to show you. And really good point. And you worked on the movie Birdman, which was incredible. That was talk about a film that was so visually stunning. Yeah. But it, it the story was masterfully told. Oh, exactly. And that was a good example of visual effects needed to be 100% in support to the story. And what Emmanuel Lubezki and Alejandro Iñárritu were doing with the camera and the actors, everything was, it was almost a military pacing to the way that the film was progressing. And visual effects need to, needed to be there every single step just to tie it all together. And you couldn't drop the ball per se, because as soon as it showed that there was a visual effect, you people get out of the story or kind of go, oh, wait a minute, what happened there? That, but it's like the magic is diminished then. Yeah, that the makes magic sense. is diminished and you lose your flow that you're trying to keep with the audience because if you listen to that movie, there's a certain pace to it. There's a rhythm with those drum tracks and it's very present from the beginning until the end. There's a rhythm to it, a pacing that's very precise. And as soon as there's something that catches your eye and it's not supposed to be there or it's not artfully done, it gets people out of it right away. And then they're going to need a couple of minutes to get back into that flow. And that's what you don't want to do. Oh, okay. So some of the VFX was just about just removing things that were distracting, you're saying, in that film. Oh, sometimes that happens too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah that makes sense. And actually, that's what's been cool to see about the progression of this field is when people traditionally have thought about VFX, it's been like sci-fi heavy films or 
certain kinds of action films, but now it's really all kinds of projects. And then there's period piece films that it's becoming more prevalent where people can make New York City look older or that, that sort of thing. Oh, now people relate to it as world building. Literally, you're creating a universe for the film now. There's always that saying that Jurassic Park, the first one, that was back, what, in 92, 93? 93, yeah. 93. If I'm not, look, I may have forgotten some of the stats, but that film, I think, had something around 75 or 80 visual effect shots. You look at a romantic comedy now that comes out and it has hundreds of them. That's incredible. That's a good statistic to think about. Part of it all now, people, you know, now most of the time, man or a woman sitting in a cafe, having a coffee or discussing, there's a solid chance what you're seeing outside the window is not there because it's easier and more to do that restaurant or set piece in studio and then put a green screen and then shoot your outside differently, put them together. It'll be easier for the schedule. It'll be easier for planning it out than to going than going on location and shooting it and shutting down the streets and this and that. So the, there's a lot more work involved now. So on the Hunger Games, Catching Fire, that must have been that must have been a large assignment at the time. Were there a lot of VFX vendors working on that particular film? And which do you remember which shots Rodeo completed? Oh yeah, that goes uh, that goes for a while back. Yeah, yeah, that film had a lot of vendors working on it. That was one of the big kind of visual effects films and the franchise that was coming up in those days. Rodeo was working. We were mostly working on all the scenes of and now. Very apologies, everyone. I'm, I may mess up some of the names and the characters because it's been. We've worked while. on so many projects, so it's. I think it's forgivable. <laughs> But all the scenes where Katniss and her friend, they're being introduced to, to that they're going to be participating in the next Hunger Games. So they're in their sector and they're being presented as the next candidates and people start raising their hand and doing that two finger kind of salute, I think, protesting. So it was basically all of those scenes where we had the, all the crowd around Katniss and her friend and they start manifesting and protesting and they you know the, a bit of a beat down and then there are some elements that start burning as well around them. And so I forgot all the details, but it, it was those scenes. Nice. And you also worked on Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. Was that one that you were particularly proud of? Yeah, that was... That film, we we had a good run in terms of amount of shots and visual effects we did. It was mostly, that film had a lot of vendors working on it as well. Our participation in it was a little bit smaller, even though we did a big number of shots. Our input was a little bit smaller in the sense that it was a lot of just um, compositing shots of just set extensions and quick little paint outs and rotos and, and comp fixes. So we didn't have any of those massive environments or CG assets. It was mostly just a high volume of compositing work to help out production that was really slammed with a huge amount of work. So we were able to come in a little bit later in the game and help them out in doing a lot of volume work for them. And on certain films like Birdman, for example, what's like the chain of communication that goes from the director that reaches down to like the compositor? What would it normally be like the way that it happens usually on on big visual effects projects you have on the production side you're going to have let's say the director talking directly with the visual effects supervisor that's on the production side so you're going to have a visual effects produ producer and supervisor on the production side working very closely with the director and the editors 
And then on the vendor side, you're going to have the visual effects supervisor as well for the vendor, as well as the artist underneath them. And they're going to be all working together and communicating this way. So, so on, on those films, what happens is that you're going to have maybe two or three calls sometimes per week with both visual effects supervisors from vendor and production, talking closely together, working, showing the work in progress on a weekly basis, where they're at with the shots, what they're working on, presenting the shots for final, and showing the work in progress to show any progress and getting any constructive feedback and criticism to be able to move the shots forward. That's a classic approach when you have big tentpoles. When you have smaller films, sometimes while you're directly working with the director. So you're the visual effects supervisor on the vendor side. You go on set, you help out on set for the methodologies of shooting and making sure you get every element that you need, all the data that you need to create the visual effects. And then after that process, you're working directly with the director. So on Berman, that was a good example where I was working directly with the Alejandro Inuritu. So we, we would have calls once a week or once every two weeks. And I would present where we're at with the shots, just have a chat with the, the editor, the producers on their side, with the Alejandro as well. And we would discuss the progress of the shot. And on some other film, we'll, we'll be dealing directly with the visual effects supervisor instead on the other side. So that relationship of talking directly with the filmmakers themselves, Birdman is a good example. Better Call Saul in the last years and El Camino, the Breaking Bad story films, those were good examples of myself working directly with either the director or the showrunners and producers. I uh, love Better Call Saul, but I love that show. It's incredible. It's one of my favorite shows ever. I, yeah, same. I, I and I was just, I was telling somebody recently, in fact, on a podcast, I'm like, there's some stuff that I've seen on that show that... At first, it was like, it's some of the best stuff I've seen on television. And I was like, you know what? It's not just some of the best stuff I've seen on television. It's the, some of the best stuff I've seen on screen, period, really. Oh, I yeah, mean, yeah. The past two, three seasons, all the seasons were fantastic. But visually, the last two, three seasons were so fun to look at and work on. And it was fantastic. Yeah, that is so cool that you worked on that. So I think that is that to me, that's just as exciting as the fact that you worked on Birdman. And I love Birdman. And yep. I used to be somebody that, I don't want to say like I thumbed my nose at television, but I was 10 or so years ago, 15 years ago, especially I was like, oh, I don't watch shows. I just watch movies and you know, that, that sort of thing. And the dynamic has definitely changed where that dynamic completely changed. And in the last, and I would say maybe four or five years, it really changed. You start seeing those massive streaming shows they have there there's such a big character arc now in in some of these tv series the writing's fantastic and they have budget now back in the day tv series did not have any budget for vfx it was always very small very fast paced now it's still fast paced but there's budget to really be able to do some quality visual effects which is beautiful because when you have a 10 12 or 18 episode arc in a season there's a lot of, and editorially speaking, you can develop your characters the way that they need to be developed. You don't have an hour and 42 minutes to do it. You have a lot more time. So there's dialogue and you get to grow with those characters. And how many people do you think in total are working on the VFX on a series like that? There's hundreds. It could be, right? Depending on, 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 on the series, yeah, they could be either Better Call Saul. We were a small group. We were about, I think, 45, I think, working on the last season, on season six. But then you look at some other huge series, whether it's Rings of Power or Game of Thrones or you name them, all of those bigger series, 
you get into the thousands you know, with the multiple vendors and everybody involved. It's huge. Right. Because with, yeah, that makes sense because those are like better call Saul. People don't think of it as like a, it's not, it's not like a sci-fi show or something like some or like fantasy. So it's not something people really even associate BFX with, but it's, but, but as you mentioned before, it's even in romantic comedies, it's in everything. And oh, it's in everything. In Better Call Saul, a good example in the last season was when Gus Fring is meeting Mike and other uh, other people in the chicken coop, the chicken farm. That chicken farm doesn't exist anymore. So that was all VFX. That's incredible. So that was a good example of visual effects, just serving the, being in the background, serving the story because the original chicken farm from Breaking Bad was... It did. did you work on that? So I guess you worked on the whole last season, but that episode where, spoiler alert, Lalo gets taken down... I thought that was, yeah, that just blew me away. Visually, I was like, wow, I couldn't, as I was watching it, it was just, I just had that feeling of, wow, this is some of the best stuff I've ever watched on. Oh, that last season, every episode, I was looking at it going, oh my God, this is going to happen in this one. Wow. And then you see it happen. And even though you know what's going to happen, it's mind blowing the way that it's executed, the way it's written, the way it's shot. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And I love the black and white stuff too, that took place in the present. Yeah. I just love the whole emotional of the characters. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I guess on, on the first it movie, you served on, on set visual effects supervisor on behalf of rodeo. Do you, could you tell us what duties an onset supervisor an onset supervisor is responsible for? Yeah, the onset supervisor, what I did on, on, on it is the visual effects supervisor for it was uh, on the production side was Nick Brooks, with whom I had worked on, on You See Me, on Last Witch Hunter, prior to it. So we already had a good relationship. The supervisor at Rodeo, who was in charge of it, was Arno Brisbane. And due to scheduling conflicts, he couldn't go on set. For it, I went in for him. So I went to, that was being shot in Toronto. So I spent, I think it was three weeks, four weeks in Toronto, working on some of the scenes that we were going to be doing the visual effects for. So did you, when you, do, did you enjoy doing that, being an on-set supervisor? Oh yeah, it's really fun. It, it's fantastic because there's nothing like going on set and walking around the set that you know, you're going to be enhancing or adding to or seeing the in-costume delivering their lines, doing it all, talking directly with the cinematographer, the director, the production designer. You have access to all these people that you know are creating it and you're participating with them and you're exchanging ideas as to how a certain scene will be shot and or a certain shot will need to be set up for visual effects and what you need as a visual effects supervisor for your artist, what you need to gather in terms of data to be able to do the work and what can be done on the day when they're shooting of making sure that you have accurate coverage, whether it's for green screens or clean plates or this or that, or eyeline, working out eyeline and continuity. And there's so many different discussions to be had. So it's always very exciting to be there and being with the filmmakers, with the actors in, in walking on the sets. That once you, months later, when you're doing the visual, it's fantastic because you can relate to what you're seeing on screen because you were there, you saw how it was. That makes sense. You're dialed into exactly how it should turn out. Yep. So I guess what's uh, what's next on the horizon for you? Are there any 
cool projects that you're working on that we could look forward to seeing in the near future? In the past couple of years, I worked extensively on, on the Rings of Power, Lord of the Rings of Power on Amazon. So I'm very excited to be able to share some of what we did soon. Hopefully that's going to happen soon. That was some epic and exciting work. What I'm working on now, that's a year or two, we might discuss those are under heavy NDAs. So I can't really understandable, but I could say that in the past two years, the Rings of Power, Better Call Saul, Shang-Chi, all were some of the films that were series now. It's that I was very proud to be a part of. Excellent. Ara, I really appreciate you being on the Globe Screen podcast today. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. That was fantastic.